Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. open with prayer. Lord, what a week it has been, what a day it has been, and so I pray that you would focus our minds here tonight as we feast on your word and all that you have to teach us in this next hour. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's say our memory verse, but with no slide. Who can do it? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, 40, or Mark 10, 45. <laughs> Good job, ladies. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start tonight with a quick overview of everything that we've seen so far in Mark. And in the first eight chapters, a lot has happened, but in very broad terms, we've seen a few things occur over and over. Mark began began the gospel with his assertion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we saw John the Baptist prepare the way. And once Jesus was baptized and tempted, he began his ministry by proclaiming the gospel and the need for repentance. We've seen Jesus doing three main things, teaching and preaching, being constantly followed and surrounded by a large crowd and performing many, many miracles, including healing, casting out demons, calming storms, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, and walking on water. Through his teaching and miracles, Jesus' authority over all things has been repeatedly displayed, and thus Mark's claims about Jesus' identity have been more than supported. So to the reader, it should be very clear by this point that Jesus is both the Messiah and the Son of God. We've also heard a lot about the kingdom of God, and we've heard Jesus ask almost everyone not to talk about the miraculous things that he's doing. We're starting to see that what began as background opposition is moving into the forefront of our story as conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders has continued to increase over the last couple of weeks. And tonight, we'll begin with what most consider to be the turning point in Mark. From this point forward, Jesus' actions and ministry are going to look pretty different from what we've seen in the first eight chapters, and this week's reading serves as sort of a connecting piece between the two major sections of Mark. So the two major sections are Mark 1, 1 through Mark 8, 26, and then Mark 11 through 16. So in those first eight chapters, Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? And in the final six chapters, Mark will take us on Jesus's journey to fulfill his calling and answer the question, how does Jesus become the Messianic King? In this week's text, the connecting section from 827 to 1052, Jesus is mostly concerned with making sure his disciples understand what's coming, answering the question, what does it mean that he is the Messianic King. So here is our outline for tonight. We have the confession and the first foretelling, then we have the second foretelling, and then we have the third foretelling, and there's some sub points in each of those. 
And just a reminder that all of these slides do get posted online. So if I'm moving quickly, they'll be on the website. Okay, so we stopped last week just short of the end of chapter 8 because here in verses 27 to 30, something amazing is going to happen. Jesus has just healed a blind man in Bethsaida, and we read in verse 27 that Jesus heads on from there with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they respond with the same answers that we saw in chapter 5. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say a prophet. And then in verse 29, we come to one of my favorite words in scripture, B-U-T. But... Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Jesus is not concerned in this moment with what all of the others are saying about him. That's irrelevant. The beliefs of others do not affect our standing before God. It is only what we personally believe that makes a difference in our lives. And Jesus wants to know what his disciples personally believe about who he is. And Peter, probably speaking for the group, answers Jesus, you are the Christ. Finally, there's this moment of hope for this motley crew who seem to have been missing the mark quite a lot lately. And all the pieces seem to have finally fallen into place. They now recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the promised Messiah come to usher in the kingdom of God. And just as almost all the times before, whenever Jesus did something or said something that might reveal his true identity, he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one. Remember that the reason for all of this secrecy is because of the misconceptions that the Jews had about what the Messiah would do when he arrived. And now that his disciples understand him to be that Messiah, Jesus is going to spend the next two chapters setting the record straight about exactly what it's going to look like. Immediately following Peter's confession, Jesus foretells his death for the first time. He tells his disciples that he must suffer, be rejected by the Jewish leaders, be killed, and then rise again after three days. And he says this all plainly, or in other words, not in parables. So what? The disciples are thinking. Let's remember that what their mindset is at this point. They've just confirmed their suspicions that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, so their minds are probably running wild with all that that means. The Messiah to them was a militaristic king who would come and make war against the Romans, overthrowing the empire and establishing God's kingdom in its place. But their king just told them that none of what they expect is going to happen. In fact, quite the opposite will take place. Instead of conquering, he's going to suffer and be rejected. Instead of overthrowing the Romans, he's going to die. And apparently, they're too shocked to understand the last part of what he says, that he's not going to stay dead, but will rise again after three days. And Peter, well, he just can't handle the ridiculousness of all of this anymore, so he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. The Lord, the King, the one that he just identified as the Messiah, he rebukes him. And we learn from chapter 16 in Matthew's gospel that Peter says this, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we see that even though they've finally grasped who Jesus is, they still don't understand what it means. Jesus turns, and seeing his disciples, he turns Peter's rebuke back onto him and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
It is Peter's thought, not Peter himself, that is rebuked as satanic here. And Jesus explains that it's because he and the other disciples have placed the things of man above the things of God. Instead of accepting Jesus' words about what it means for him to be the Christ, Peter continues holding tightly onto his own ideas about what it means. Jesus then calls the whole crowd to him and he expands on this teaching. He says that the cost of aligning oneself with the Messiah is denying oneself, taking up one's cross and following Jesus. So what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, the cross for Jesus meant literal death. And there are certainly many brothers and sisters who have been called to carry that exact same cross for Christ. The majority of us sitting here in this room, however, will likely not face death on account of the gospel. So what does it mean for us? Well, Jesus tells us a little bit about that in the next few verses. In verse 35, to explain what it means to self-deny, take up one's cross and follow him, Jesus gives us a look at the upside down and backward economy of the kingdom of God. If you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, you'll save it. Jesus is referring to two different kinds of life here, the life that we live here on earth and the eternal life that we will experience after we die. He's saying that those who hold tightly to their earthly lives, who can't let go of all their belongings and desires and relationships, who focus all their efforts on this present world and the things that it offers, they will lose their chance for eternal life, lived in communion with God because they didn't acknowledge him. They didn't take up their cross. To carry your cross, you can't have your hands full with everything else. Conversely, whoever forgoes the things of this world, giving up belongings and desires and relationships for the sake of following Jesus and proclaiming his gospel will indeed find eternal life. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, Jesus asks? There is no material thing in this world that we can take with us when we die. No amount of money, size of house, make of car, height of achievement that will transfer from this life into the next. So why are we grasping them so tightly? On a day-to-day -day basis, the only things that we do that truly matter are those that have eternal value. Those things done for, the, for God and for his kingdom. They are the only things that will last beyond this life. The rest will all be left behind. For what can a man give, Jesus asks in verse 37, in return for his soul? When Jesus returns... Nothing from this world can be offered in exchange for the salvation of our souls. At the final judgment, we can't barter for our salvation with all of our stuff. The only thing that we can bring in that moment is something that we don't bring ourselves at all, rather something that we have been freely given. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins is our only hope. It is the only acceptable offering for eternal life. And this reminded me of a stanza in an old hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And in the last verse of chapter 8, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the angels. 
Jesus says that if we are ashamed of him now, embarrassed to be associated with him, reluctant to align ourselves with the gospel for fear of humiliation, then he will be ashamed of us in the final judgment when he comes. Jesus here professes his authority in that judgment, and what a sad and horrible day it will be for those of whom Jesus is ashamed. So, in summary, what does it mean to take up your cross? It means letting go of the things of this world and pursuing the things of eternal value. It means resting in Christ's work on your behalf, but not just resting, but confessing and believing To take up our crosses, we must not be ashamed of the message of the cross, but proclaim it boldly, no matter what personal humiliation or embarrassment might result. Note that this verse is talking about persistent, unrepentant shame, not a moment of weakness followed by genuine sorrow and repentance. Looking forward to Mark 14, we see Peter deny Jesus three times. And after his three denials, we read in verse 72 that he broke down and wept. But we know that Peter went on to be a faithful, bold follower of Christ, writing two of the books of the New Testament and ultimately being martyred for his faith. So if you are thinking tonight of a time when you have been ashamed of your Lord, come before him in confession and repentance and experience his love, forgiveness, and restoration. Jesus follows up his teaching on the cost of discipleship by saying that there are some standing with him at that moment that would not die until they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. Most likely this coming of the kingdom is referring to what happens in the next verses and in context with the current discussion about the cost of discipleship, it also seems to communicate that self-denial, taking up your cross and following Jesus are paired with the blessing of witnessing the power of God and catching little glimpses now of his not yet fully realized kingdom. And some of those with Jesus are about to experience a foretaste of Christ's coming glory. So six days after this teaching, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain by themselves. And Mark tells us that he was transfigured before them. Literally, trans means a cross and figure means shape or form. So just as a transatlantic flight takes you across the Atlantic, Christ's transfiguration took him across forms. He was no longer merely a man in form, but he became clothed with radiant and intensely white clothes, more white than anything on earth can be. And to emphasize his otherness in this moment, two men that had lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago appear with him. Elijah and Moses, representing respectively the prophets and the law. And Peter and those with him are reasonably terrified and at a loss for words, so Peter offers to set up earthly dwellings for these three heavenly figures. He's still not quite getting it. And we're told that a cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud declares, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Audible confirmation from heaven that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and that the disciples need to listen to him. And I'm definitely reading into the text a little bit here, but I wonder if the listen here is akin to all of Jesus' admonitions for his followers to have ears to hear. Jesus told them what is coming for him in his role as Messianic king, and God here instructs these three apostles present to listen, to really listen to what he's saying. 
This is the second time in Mark's gospel that we've heard the voice of the Heavenly Father, and that's not insignificant. When he spoke at Jesus' baptism, it was at the start of Jesus' ministry. And as God speaks now, it's the start of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross. Just as at his baptism, Jesus' ministry trajectory is changing, and God speaks to his son again, affirming the direction in which he is headed. The cloud is also significant, reminiscent of a time in the early days of the Bible, after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. In more than one place in Exodus, we're told that the Lord descended on a cloud on Mount Sinai, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the Lord stood with and talked to Moses there. And on one particular occasion, when Moses was in the cloud, in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name before him. And afterward, when Moses came down the mountain, his shining, his face, the skin of his face was shining because he had encountered God. Here, Jesus isn't shining because he had encountered God. He's shining because he is God. And the disciples have just been gifted with a glimpse of the glory that is rightfully his. And then everything is as it was. The cloud is gone. Elijah and Moses are gone. And they're left standing with Jesus just as before. And yet everything has changed. Because when we see the Lord's glory displayed, it is life-changing. We can't just keep going on as if nothing has happened. And yet we often do. We have these mountaintop moments where we experience the glory of the Lord in our lives and we'll stay hyped up in that moment for a little while, but then it fades away into the mundanity of life and we can forget that it ever happened. So how can you make a point this week to remember the ways that you have seen God's glory displayed in your life and in the lives of those you love? And as Jesus is coming down the mountain with the three, he charges them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after he has risen from the dead. Mark tells us that these three men actually obey, which has not been the norm previously when Jesus has issued this command, but that they question what he meant by rising from the dead. They're likely thinking of the resurrection from the dead that is predicted to come for all of mankind at the end of time. We see this resurrection prophesied in Daniel 12, verse 2, when Daniel is receiving a word from the Lord about the end of time. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And if that's what Jesus is talking about here, then Elijah, he has to come first, according to another prophecy from Malachi that we actually looked at earlier this summer, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So thinking that Jesus is talking about the end of time, which is to be preceded by Elijah's appearance, they ask him, well then, if you're talking about rising from the dead, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answers them, he does. Elijah comes first to restore all things. And then he poses a question to them. They're asking about fulfillment of scriptural prophecies. So he reminds them of another one. How is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's most often understood that Jesus is referring here to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. And the whole chapter deserves to be read, so I encourage you to do that later. But for the sake of time, here are just a couple of verses. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then Jesus tells them, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And he's referring not to the original Elijah literally coming back, but to John the Baptist, who, if you'll remember, was said to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and who was beheaded because of his message of repentance. What the disciples haven't put together yet is that the two prophecies go hand in hand. Elijah's, or really John the Baptist's coming, did precede the great and awesome day of the Lord, just not in the way that they were expecting it. In his first coming, Jesus came, but not as the militaristic warrior king that they were waiting for, but as the suffering servant prophesied in the Isaiah 53 passage. When Christ comes again, however, he will return in all his glory as the conquering king who will judge the earth and all of mankind. So when Jesus and his disciples make it back down the mountain, they come to find the rest of the disciples surrounded by a great crowd, and they're arguing with the scribes. And upon seeing this, or upon seeing Jesus, the crowd immediately runs up and greets him, and Jesus says, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd speaks up, and it's the father of a little boy who tells Jesus that he had brought his son to him in order to have a horrible demon cast out of him. And his disciples tried to do it, but they were unsuccessful. Jesus responds in what sounds like exasperation. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's apparently, once again, a lack of faith that is causing the difficulty here, and Jesus tells them to bring the boy to him. They obey, and upon seeing Jesus, the Spirit demonstrates his power over the boy's body, causing him to fall to the ground, roll around, and foam at the mouth. And Jesus asks the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? The father replies, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can, Jesus replies, this is exactly the faithlessness that he was just talking about. All things are possible, Jesus continues, for one who believes. I believe, the father immediately cries out, help my unbelief. And what a beautiful response this is from the father, admitting where he is lacking. And this is certainly something that I know I've said many times in my own life when faced with a seemingly impossible or insurmountable situation. So about what thing in your life do you need to say those words to Jesus tonight? So after Jesus successfully casts the demon out of the little boy, the disciples ask him why they couldn't do it. And here in Mark, his response is recorded as, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, implying that it was a lack of prayerfulness on the part of the disciples that inhibited their ability to exercise the demon. In Matthew, Jesus' response is slightly different. Because of your little faith, he tells them. So it seems that prayer and faith are linked Greater fellowship with God leads to greater faith. And one of the most significant ways that we fellowship with God is through prayer. So how is your prayer life right now? What is one measurable, achievable way that you can increase or deepen your prayer life this week? 
our small group recently completed a six-week study series on prayer. And at the end of it, my pastor challenged us to undertake a 30-day prayer challenge. And it's simply this. Commit to pray for one thing every day for 30 days. And then look at what the Lord has done. And I'll be honest, at the end of my 30 days, I didn't experience a very clear answer to my prayers or some incredible revelation about what my future holds. But I did come away with an incredible peace about wherever the Lord may lead. And what had been a source of angst for me now no longer is. I know that the peace of God is guarding my heart and my mind, and it was really a blessing in my life. And this is just one of many ways that you can take a purposeful step toward deeper and more consistent communication with your Heavenly Father. So the disciples depart from there and they move south through Galilee. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's passing through because he's teaching his disciples. His teaching is beginning to turn the focus of his ministry away from the large crowds and onto his faithful followers, preparing them for what's to come. And for the second time, he foretells his death. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But once again, we see that the disciples do not understand, and they're too afraid to ask him to explain. When they arrive in Capernaum, Jesus asks his disciples, what were you talking about on the way? They're too ashamed to answer, however, because instead of talking about what Jesus meant by his death and resurrection, or even asking Jesus himself to explain, they were arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They're still dreaming of their position and power once Jesus reveals himself as the messianic king and overthrows Rome. They're thinking of fame and honor, not really hearing what Jesus is actually saying to them. They're still stuck in their own fantasies and ideas. Instead of scolding them, however, Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. Just as after the first time he foretold his death, Jesus speaks to his disciples about what it truly means to follow him. If anyone would be first, he tells them, he must be last of all and servant of all. And after saying this, he takes a little child, places him among them, takes him in his arms and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And I was reminded of a receiving blanket, which is traditionally used to wrap up a newborn immediately after birth, but it also doubles as a changing table, nursing cover, portable playmat, burp cloth, and oh, so many more things. Receiving implies more than just reception. It implies love and caring. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples to here. It's important to know that children in that day were very low on the social totem pole. They weren't considered unclean, like a leper or a Gentile, but their overall status wasn't really much higher than that. And yet Jesus tells his disciples that they need to have regard for this lowly child. They need to receive him and thereby receive Jesus and ultimately God the Father. And again, we see the upside down and backward economy of God's kingdom. It's not about who's the greatest, God teaches. Instead, it's the one who is last, the one who serves others and receives, loves, and cares for the lowest in society that receives what is greatest in all the world, God himself. And Jesus isn't just asking his disciples to live this way. He's living it out in that very moment. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just as Jesus isn't asking his disciples to take up their crosses without also taking up his own, he's not encouraging his disciples to be the servant of all without also assuming that posture. Jesus is our perfect example of what it looks like to be last of all and servant of all. He doesn't ask us to walk where he has not also trodden. So where do you need to follow in your Savior's footsteps tonight and lay down yourself for the sake of another? And think about the people that you associate with on a weekly basis. Does it ever include the lowest, the marginalized, or the outcast? So at this point, one of the disciples, John, speaks up and tells Jesus that they had run into a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So they tried to stop him because he wasn't part of their group. Well, don't stop him, Jesus says. If he's not against us, he is for us. Whoever does something for you on account of the fact that you belong to Christ, will ultimately find reward from God himself. On the other hand, Jesus says, if someone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, there will be no reward for him. Instead, it would have been better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And Jesus then continues to speak to the seriousness of sin, and not just causing another to sin, but your own personal sin. He says that it is better to cut off whatever part of your body is causing you to sin, be it your hand, your foot, or your eye, and to go through life disfigured and crippled than to be whole in body while here on earth, but to be cast into hell for eternity because you didn't deal with your sin. This is serious stuff. Jesus is emphasizing again the idea that the things of this world are not of ultimate importance and they are to be readily cast off if they should cause us to sin. This is the same message that he spoke about earlier when he told the disciples to deny themselves and take up their crosses. When you follow Christ, you are not at home in this world. You are an alien, a sojourner, a foreigner. So don't set up shop like you're going to be here forever. You should be building your home in heaven instead, your permanent, eternal home. Now, this is, of course, hyperbole. Please don't actually go cutting off or gouging out any body parts. But Jesus uses this literary technique to communicate just how serious the issue of sin is. But do we treat it with the same seriousness? Do we go to extreme lengths to stop gossiping? to combat slothfulness, or to kill pride. What sin in your life needs to be defeated tonight? What thing in your life do you need to cut off because it is playing a part in that sin? Maybe it's a book that you're reading or a show that you've enjoyed watching, a regular lunchtime gossip session with coworkers, or hours spent scrolling through your phone while your God-given duties are left undone. Sisters, this is a hard thing. I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. This is a lifelong battle, and we must daily be asking ourselves these questions. And then when the Lord shows us what we need to be rid of, we must plead for his help because we cannot defeat any of these things in our own power, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to renew our hearts and our minds. 
This is no small prayer. It is a refining prayer. And that's what most scholars think that Jesus is talking about in these next few sentences. He ends this teaching with a section about salt. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's a lot of debate about it, but I find the following interpretation to make the most sense in light of everything that Jesus has been teaching his disciples recently, in light of all of his preparation for what's to come. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we read in chapter 2, verse 13, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall also offer salt. So Jesus is using sacrificial language here, but he's saying that it's not salt that will be seasoning the disciples, but fire. Fiery trials are coming. And just as the seasoning with salt made the offerings acceptable to God, so too will the seasoning with fire produce in his true followers a refined, purified faith with which they will endure till the end. In verse 50, Jesus continues the salt metaphor. Salt is good, he says. These fiery trials with which you will be salted, that resulting salt that's left over, it's good. It's purified and refined and useful for seasoning and enriching all that it is added to. But if it loses its saltiness, Matthew's gospel tells us that it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If then we don't maintain the purification that comes through the fire, we are at risk of losing our ability to season or to influence the world for Christ. Impure salt is not useful in the same way that a Christian who looks like the impure world around her, rather than the purified daughter of the king that she is called to be, is not a compelling witness for the kingdom. And so we are called to have salt in ourselves, because if we don't have our own salt, how can we salt others? And lastly, Jesus says to be at peace with one another, which seems like a strange way to end this section, but it's actually all related. All of the talk about salt being good is in reference to our Christian witness, the way that the world sees us. And one of the best witnesses we can have is to be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. How many times have quarrels and strife within the church tainted its witness to the watching world? Sadly, too many. And so Jesus exhorts his disciples and us to be at peace. Chapter 10 opens with Jesus and the disciples moving on from Galilee to Judea, which is southward. They're moving towards Jerusalem. And once again, we see that crowds are gathering and he's teaching them. And as he's teaching, the Pharisees arrive to give him another test. Is it lawful, they ask, for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds by asking them what Moses commanded, and they answer that, well, Moses allowed it. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, Jesus says, but... From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, because God made them male and female from the beginning of creation, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a difficult topic. 
and one that hits close to home for many in this room tonight and who might listen to this teaching later. So I just want to start by acknowledging that. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I will present what I believe Jesus to be saying in the text. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses does write about a certificate of divorce that allowed a man to divorce his wife and send her out of his house. But Jesus contrasts this with the creation account. Yes, Moses wrote this, but that doesn't mean it was God's intention, Jesus says. God's creation plan was for one man and one woman to be irrevocably bound to one another in marriage, the two becoming one and never again reverting to two. What has been joined together by God in the covenant act of marriage should not be separated by man in the covenant-breaking act of divorce. Later, when they're alone with Jesus, the disciples ask him about what he had said to the Pharisees, and he tells them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Matthew's gospel adds, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. When he's speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus denounces divorce as an affront to God's original will for marriage affirming God's design for marriage to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman. When he's speaking alone to the disciples, he's still addressing the matter of divorce, but with the extra discussion about a divorce being followed by a marriage to someone else. When a man or a woman divorces his or her spouse and then remarries, not only has he or she sinned against God, but also against his or her first spouse, committing adultery against him or her. So I'll say just a couple things here. Firstly, I think this is one of those times where we have to lay aside our preconceived notions to decloud our minds from what we want the text to say or hope that the text will say and read it for what it's really saying. I'm often wary of any interpretation of Jesus's teachings that try to explain away his words. I know that is what it says, but he didn't actually mean it that way. As difficult as they are to hear sometimes, Jesus' words are truth. And we have no reason to believe that he meant anything other than exactly what he said. Secondly, this Jesus, who clearly speaks against divorce, is the same Jesus that we have seen be merciful and compassionate. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, only conviction. And just as with any sin, Jesus promises to forgive us when we confess them before him. So after this teaching, we read that people were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. One author that I read said that at this time, as many as six out of 10 children died before the age of 16. Life was not kind to young people, and medicine and hygiene was not what it is today. And perhaps then these parents were hoping that a touch from the healer might afford their children a greater chance at survival and longer life. The disciples, however, rebuke the parents. Remember that children are not highly regarded at this time. Stop bothering Jesus, they might have said. He's too important to deal with your kids. But when Jesus saw what his disciples were doing, he was indignant. He was angry. And he said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And again, we see that the kingdom of God has an upside down way about it. These little children who you think are too lowly and worthless for my attention, they're actually the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. And then he adds, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Not only does the kingdom belong to these little children, I actually want you, my disciples, to be like them. They don't have anything to offer. They have no social status to speak of, and anything that is afforded to them in life is not a result of anything that's in themselves, but it is a gift. So, too, we are given the kingdom as a gift, not as a result of our status or our accomplishments. All we have to do is accept it. And Jesus gives the children the gift of his blessing, taking them in his arms and laying his hands on them. And as Jesus is setting out on his journey, probably his journey to Jerusalem, we read that Jesus goes from blessing the lowest in society to being confronted by the highest. A man runs up, kneels before him, and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is admittedly a bit puzzling. He asks why the man calls him good, because no one is good except God alone. Perhaps Jesus means that the man should not address him as good unless he believes him to be the Son of God. In any case, he continues on by quoting the Ten Commandments to the man, and he replies that he's kept them all from his youth. And then we read that Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the man goes away disheartened and grieving because of his great wealth. This was in a time when there were pretty much only two social classes, the poor, which made up the vast majority of the population, and the excessively opulently rich, which accounted for a very small percentage of people. This was also a time when it was generally believed that great possessions and wealth were a sign of God's blessing, and poverty was a sign of God's disfavor. So this man is likely in the very upper echelons of society. He's apparently been upholding all the Mosaic law, and he believes himself to be in God's good graces because of his wealth. He was probably expecting that Jesus would tell him that he was good to go, or maybe give him one or two small things to do, but instead Jesus tells him that he needs to sell all of his possessions, give them to the poor, and follow him. The Jewish leaders at this time actually taught that no more than 20% of your wealth should ever be given away because then you were at risk of becoming impoverished yourself. But in stark contrast, Jesus says, get rid of all of it. 100% on all the stuff and come and be my disciple. That's what you're lacking. And the man grieves because he cannot imagine doing such a thing. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples an important lesson. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed and he repeats himself, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are astonished because they've been taught the same way as the rich young man that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. So if those who have been so clearly blessed are going to have such great difficulty getting in, then who can be saved, they ask. And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. Truly, it is only by the grace of God that anyone at all is saved, rich or poor. But remember that the kingdom of God refers to the place where God reigns. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the danger of making anything other than Jesus the thing that we pursue with the most vigor. And here we see that theme repeated. God isn't going to share the throne with any other person or thing. It's rightfully his seat of honor, 
and you can either give it to him or try to dethrone him in your life and put other things in his place. And wealth, Jesus says, is a difficult thing to give up so that God can have his rightful seat on the throne. Wealth provides a sense of security or self-sufficiency. It provides comfort and abundance. So many of the things that we are promised from God, we can also seemingly find in wealth. And it can deceive us into thinking that we're fine on our own. It's alluring, and the lifestyle that comes with it is promising, and it's pretty. But you know what? You're not going to find life in wealth. You're not going to find hope or peace or joy from a larger paycheck. Your money cannot buy you eternal life, and it does not go with you beyond this world. Here are some ways to help you know if money is or is becoming a problem in your life. And these are thoughts from a pastor in Portland, Oregon named John Mark Comer. He says, money is a problem if you can't give large amounts away, only small amounts. You think about how much you have to give, not how much you can give. The more money that you make, the lower percentage of your overall income that you give. You're scared to have less than you're used to having. You think you might not be as happy. You see people who are doing better than you and you're jealous. And no matter how much money you get, you still want more. So tonight I ask you, who is on the throne of your heart, God or wealth? But this isn't really just about money. It's about whatever you've placed on the throne in place of God. So ask the Lord what needs to be dethroned in your life and then ask him to help you put him in his rightful place as king of your heart. Peter, of course, pipes up at this point and says, well, look at us. We've done it. We did everything you told the man to do. We left it all and we're following you. And Jesus replies, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left what they have here on earth for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come will receive eternal life. The blessings that come from following Jesus, namely here the admission into the family of God and the support and resources of a community of believers, do not come without persecution in this present age. But in the age to come, eternal life awaits those who have given up everything for the sake of Christ. And again, we sense the refrain, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But, Jesus says, before you get too proud, Peter, remember that Jesus' kingdom is backwards from how you've been thinking. For many who are first will be last, and the last first. The one who is last in this life will be honored as first in the life to come. And now we see Jesus' third foretelling of his death. We read that now they are actually on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus speaks to the twelve, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. We see, though, that the disciples are still not quite understanding because James and John come to Jesus after he says this and they ask if he will grant them the positions of honor at his right and left hands when he comes in his glory. Here, they're not thinking about the glory that they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're thinking about his political glory when he sits on the throne in Jerusalem after he overthrows the Romans and they want to make sure that they don't miss their opportunity for fame and power as well. Jesus responds, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
We are, they respond. They don't understand that Jesus is speaking here of the drinking the cup of God's divine wrath for the sin of all mankind and being baptized in death and suffering. They most likely think he's asking if they're able to fight alongside him. You will drink my cup and be baptized like me, Jesus says, but those places of honor have been prepared already for certain people and they are not mine to give away. For those who trust in Jesus, the cup of God's wrath was drunk for us by our Savior on the cross, and we will not bear it. We will, however, undergo refining trials and suffering in this life. Well, when the other disciples hear what James and John requested, they're upset. James and John had tried to secure their places of honor without any regard for their fellow apostles, going to Jesus by themselves and making sure that they had first dibs. But Jesus says to them that the Gentile rulers lord their status over the other Gentiles, exercising authority over those lower than them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's our memory verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, the upside-down economy of the kingdom. The rulers in God's kingdom are characterized by humility and service to others, not by lording their authority as the Gentile leaders do. And Jesus is our perfect example of this sacrificial leadership. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet he came to earth to live a life of service and sacrifice. Jesus isn't asking anything of us that he hasn't himself demonstrated. And our final story tonight is also Jesus's final healing recorded in the book of Mark. Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and it is as Jesus is leaving the city along with his disciples and a great crowd that they walk past a blind man named Bartimaeus. When Bartimaeus hears that it is Jesus passing by him, he begins to cry out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people respond in the same way that they responded to the parents bringing their children to Jesus by rebuking him. This blind beggar is not worthy of Jesus' time, they reason. But Bartimaeus, he doesn't listen. He cries out all the more for the mercy of the son of David. He demonstrates with his words that he actually understands who Jesus is. Son of David was a messianic term. And Jesus stops, and he has those with him call the man. And suddenly, their rebukes turn to encouragement. And they tell Bartimaeus, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Bartimaeus doesn't hesitate. He throws off his cloak. He springs up and he comes to Jesus. And then Jesus asks Bartimaeus the exact same question that he just asked James and John when they came to him. What do you want me to do for you? Instead of asking for power and honor, like the disciples did, Bartimaeus asks for the ability to see again. And Jesus responds, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately Bartimaeus recovers his sight. But instead of going his way, he follows Jesus, becoming a disciple and following him on the road to Jerusalem. Before Peter's confession, we saw a blind man receive his sight. And here at the end of this connecting section in Mark, we see another blind man recover his sight. Jesus has just foretold his death three times and taught his disciples about what it means to be great in God's kingdom, slowly correcting their false ideas about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And with each teaching, perhaps a bit of their spiritual blindness is peeled away as they see more and more clearly what it will mean to follow this messianic, suffering servant king. 
So will you pray for God to do the same for you tonight? to help you identify any areas of spiritual blindness and show you how you can more fully follow the example set by our servant king, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you have set the example. You have told us the cost of following you and yet you did everything that you are also asking of us. So, Lord, would you peel away any spiritual blindness that we have lingering tonight, and would you show us how to more fully follow you as our servant king and bring us back here next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you need to feel blindingly hot in here, and it's 8.30, um, but here is the Who is Jesus slide. He's the Christ, Son of Man, He's otherworldly, he's radiant, glorious, son of God, teacher. He regards the lowly. He has high regard for children. He's loving. He's the son of David. He has authority in the final judgment over unclean spirits and over disease. And how can we respond? We can reject him or rebuke him. We can be terrified of him. We can misunderstand him. We can feel sorrowful because of his words or we can fear him. Or we can recognize him for who he is. We can be amazed by him, run to him and greet him, cry out to him for help, kneel before him, ask him questions, be amazed by his words, and cry out for mercy. So how will you respond tonight? And here's your homework. Same as every week, but your new study tool is outlining. So on your syllabus, it has a little parenthetical statement that says something along the lines of whole book versus verses. Um, and so what we are asking you to do here is to outline a verse. You can take an entire book of the Bible and outline the whole thing. That's what you'll find in like the um, ESV study Bible, like the introductory section. It'll give you an outline of the whole book. We're just asking you to do Mark 11 through 13, what you're actually reading for this week. Um, so make sure to watch the instructional video for more information. And we'll see you next week and have a happy fourth.